Hi everyone, welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Jitendra. This episode is with John Barge. He is a social psychologist at Yale University. John's work has shed light on the intricate workings of the human mind, delving into topics such as priming, automaticity, and the power of the unconscious. His research has challenged conventional notions, revealing how subtle cues and environmental factors can shape our perceptions, decisions, and actions. In this conversation, we talk about unconscious mind, priming effects, evolution of consciousness, unconscious biases, and can we train our unconscious? Enjoy the conversation, share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jitendra. It's been uh, wonderful to, um, uh, I have anticipated this. Uh, uh, this is a, a really interesting broadcast, and uh, I, I always enjoy talking to people from Europe. I've spent a lot of time there in the 1990s in Germany and uh, in Italy and places like that, and even taught for a few years in Germany, and I miss it a lot. I haven't, I, since my daughter was born, I haven't been able to travel as much, but I really miss it. Yeah, I mean, I I remember 1990s Germany. Like you were you were here at that time uh, teaching. Probably. Absolutely, in yeah. Constance, Constance. Uh-huh. I was in Munich. I was in Berlin. I was in Heidelberg. I was in Mannheim, but mostly in in Konstanz is how oh, they nice. say it. Nice. So, and what what were you teaching here? Psychology. I basically yeah sure social cognition, cognitive psychology, social psychology, the motivation motivation. It was a big thing at at Konstanz. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's such a beautiful place, and so close to Switzerland. And um, uh, I I, uh, I lived on Seestrasse, you know, in a little apartment right there by the where the uh, Rheinbrücke is, and the Rhine River then proceeds up uh, western Ger- western uh, Germany. So anyway, it was a fantastic time to be there. Nice. And then when did you move to US? Uh, it was later. Right. I was at NYU for a long time, since the 80s, and then I moved to Yale at uh, 2003. So I've actually been at uh, NYU for 22 years, and then I'm at Yale for 22 years, and I'm in the retirement program now, finally. I'll let somebody else have a shot at this. Yeah. So uh, it'll be 22 years at NYU and 22 years at YU, like I tell my wife, and now it's just going to be you. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Finally, after 15 yeah. years. Yeah, NYU, YU, then yeah. just you. That's yeah. <laughs> nice. So w- what is the most in- interesting thing about uh, your job? What, what 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 do you like about psychology? Oh, my God. Um, this is the nice thing about um, this. Fa- we're doing a phased retirement. So you sort of phase out of the teaching and other administration that you can basically do the kinds of things you wish you'd only had to do the whole time. And so I'm reading, I'm writing a, a second book. Um, I'm, I'm zooming and interviewing and not interviewing, but I'm zooming and, uh, and having meetings with people, my friends and others. Uh, I still talk to students and advise students. I'm doing all the parts of the job I always loved and none of the parts of the job that I hated, which is all the committees and all the this and that's and stuff that they make you do, which is drain so much time away from just being able to, to think and and write about what you're most interested in. Um, and uh, where I got started in psychology in the first place, you know, to understand nature of consciousness, why we have it, and uh, what, what are its limits, and um, 
basically, uh, how much are we aware of why we do what we do? And uh, when we're not aware, is it a good thing or a bad thing? And all those kinds of existential questions, really. Interesting. So, and consciousness, I mean, which is, of course, people call it hard problem of consciousness. So, uh, is it really hard? What do you, what do you think then? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting because that's a sensory metaphor, right? And hard has two meanings in English and hard is uh, not just uh, uh, difficult, but it also means both mostly, it also means the hard science part of it, as opposed to the soft science part, which would be uh, subjective awareness and phenomenology and uh, experience. Uh, but the hard problem is still a hard problem. And uh, there's been a lot of concerted effort on understanding it more recently. And, and I'm not sure we're there yet, but uh, what, what's really happening now, as you know, is artificial intelligence. And now the, the quest in AI for artificial general intelligence, as in chat GPT and these chatbots, because uh, they're getting so sophisticated at sort of simulating a uh, human mind and a human response that uh, they're going to start being uh, baked in and the starting points for a lot of new software, human computer interaction or brain computer interaction. And uh, the issue, uh, and I'm talking to a lot of these uh, uh, software engineers in California, elsewhere, there's a quest right now to create an artificial general intelligence that is sentient, that is conscious. And they're, they're seemingly bypassing the hard problem uh, or cutting, uh, cutting a shortcut through it because they're trying to see if you can have machine learning or a machine uh, general intelligence, artificial intelligence that has the, the kinds of properties that would actually produce self-awareness. And, and, and a lot of the, the probes on chat GPT right now and other chatbots is to see if they if they are self-aware and to see if they if they exhibit the other kinds of uh, qualities of human consciousness. Now if that happens, and I think that's a long shot, right? I mean, they're trying very hard and they're brilliant people. But if that happens, that means we sort of, we don't have to worry about the hard problem anymore because it's informational and it has to do with attention and has to do with perhaps agency. It has to do with qualities of the mind which are not not necessarily uh, biological maybe or, or, or chemical because you're gonna produce it in a machine. But there are people who say, no, 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 <laughs> that's exactly the problem and why you're never going to get a machine or software to actually become you know, conscious in the sense of uh, self-aware and agentic. Uh, but there's a lot of really smart people who are devoting a lot of time and they're starting to get worried that they're going to be successful. And if they're successful, then they say apocryphal things like worst case scenarios, like, okay, these things, these machines are going to be millions of times smarter uh, than any human being and able to react and do things much faster. They're going to take over the earth. Why do they need people? (laughs) They're going to take over. It's like, who needs these humans? Who cares about you guys? You know, so to assume they're going to be benevolent, uh, sentient robot uh, AGIs and and say, oh, we have to take care of the human race. Uh-uh. Why would they care? And so we may be goners. You know, we may be uh, old news when this happens. If you don't worry about this now, if you don't start worrying about this situation now. And the people who are in the head of these kinds of things, Elon Musk, for example, uh, uh, started this um 
um, OpenAI. He's not involved anymore, but he was a founder. Um, uh, they worry about this, but they're not worrying enough because they say, oh, we'll just keep an eye on it. To which the other people say, you know what? When I'm eating dinner, I'm having a juicy steak. My dog keeps an eye on me. <laughs> he doesn't get any steak, but he keeps an eye on me. And you know, keeping an eye on this uh, very much smarter system and uh, and set of uh, sentient AGIs may not be sufficient if they want to do something else than help us. Yeah, and probably that's why we need more of uh, you know conversations, discussions about the topic to also un understand oh, yeah. how far we are going. Right. Um, right. Um, uh, and it's the same, for example, uh, GMOs and 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 all that, right? How how, absolutely, how far absolutely. we can go with uh, modifying the genetics of the people, etc. Yeah, at least in the U.S., the the Department of Commerce right now is saying they see no, they have no plans to regulate this uh, AGI. So okay, I mean, I see both sides of that. It's not bad to have a lack of government control and regulation over something. At the same time, this is something that is going to affect everybody uh, if it if it goes if it, if it goes at the speed it's going. Because they used to say oh 2090, then 2060, then 2040. Now they're saying 2030. Now they're saying 2025. You know, is this going to happen? Huh? You know, I still think there's the hard problem. I had a, a very good friend in the past, and uh, he he passed away 20 years ago now, named Jeffrey Gray, and he wrote a book about consciousness, the hard problem, in 2004, right before he died of leukemia. Um, and he was a specialist in anxiety and a psychophysiological basis of anxiety, and from the UK. Um, and if you read his book, you you just get a sense of the enormity of the problem. I'm not sure there's been much progress that I've seen. I've, I've tried to read everything that's out currently, uh, and I don't see much progress with the hard problem in, in the books I'm reading right now. But it's the shortcuts which are exciting because the shortcuts uh, try to bypass the physiology and the biology and go right to the informational complexity aspect. Yeah. Let's come back to this aspect a bit later um, because your work, I mean, of course, you were interested in consciousness or the stream of consciousness, but then you've also explored the stream of unconsciousness, right? So what is that? Um, and um, how important is that for our daily lives? So, Jitendra, that's a wonderful question, which is what my mind's been on for two years now, constantly, uh, eating, drinking, sleeping, this question. And um, you know, I wrote a book in 2017 called Before You Know It, which basically summarized what I've been doing and the field had been doing on these questions of the unconscious processes of everyday life. Not just in a laboratory with tachistoscopes and, and subliminal anything, because those aren't really relevant to real life. What are the uh, kinds of unconscious influences that happen to us in normal functioning with human interaction, with our motivation and our jobs, with our, our relations with our families and friends and all these things that make life, you know, what it is, the, the really rich experience that it is. So I summarized it in that book. And it had a lot to do with influences from the past of evolution, but also your recent past carrying over in the present, how you immediately evaluate like or dislike things and 
the behavior of other people is contagious and you can't help but what you perceive is what you tend to do yourself. And there's all these contagious effects in society and social media. And then the future with how you and uh, how your goals and motivations and purposes color how you see even the present because you evaluate the present in terms of how it's good for your current goals, which may not be in your long-term interest. It may just be what's good for the goal at that moment. So past, present, future, right? Okay, so those are unconscious influences and what can we do about them? So what I've been doing since is uh, you might as well call it, I, I don't want to call it this, but you could call it after you know it because after you know it has to do with the effects of conscious experience. And where I started was to, uh, as we um, uh, were talking briefly be, before this show, we were talking briefly about, uh, you know, when people uh, uh, have disagreements, what, what you really want to do is try to take your the other side seriously and say, well, they have reasons and evidence for believing that. And can I reconcile or understand uh, what they're finding and what I'm finding to see if there's ways that they're both true. And so I wanted to understand the very strong feeling among a certain branch of psychologists that believes that everything is conscious and everything is an awareness and you don't know or do anything without it being a conscious choice and deliberate and you're aware of it, which is opposite to what I've been, others have been finding. I wanted to understand that because uh, clearly, that's disagreement. Now, can they be right and this other side of unconscious influences be right? And that's what I've been working on the last couple of years. As it turns out, I came to this discovery, and it was a news to me, it was a real discovery to me, that I would never have gotten these, these kinds of um, indirect, implicit, uh, uh, unaware influences, uh, like priming influences, but also carryover, contextual influences of situations, all these kinds of influences on us, I would never and others would never have gotten them if it wasn't for the way conscious, the conscious mind works and conscious processes work. Because the classic work back in the day of the cognitive revolution of the 1960s and 70s showed that you only get meanings and objects and integration of sensory modalities with conscious attention. And so, and then maybe that carries over, but you have to have conscious attention to the world for the meanings to be extracted in the first place that then carry over perhaps into the next situation without you realizing it, which are basically priming effects. But the point is you would never get these kinds of rich meanings of, uh, of uh, goals and motives and evaluations and feelings and all these things that do that are the unconscious influences from one moment to the next. You would never get them without the way conscious mind and conscious attention works. So they're, they've got to be right. I could never have gotten my effects in the past if they weren't right. So here's the reconciliation already that yeah, uh, if there was subliminal or if it was unattended or if it wasn't conscious in the first place, you never would have gotten any of the effects I ever got. It has to be the way the conscious mind works, the way uh, uh, meaning is extracted and objects are formed, integrated, the enhanced processing given to material with the focus of conscious attention, selective attention. You get that. And then those rich meanings can carry over and influence you after that. They're part of a conscious field. But if it's not part of the conscious field, it'll have no effect. So I'm saying you, you guys were right. You're absolutely right. That has to happen. And then, and then after it happens, then you can have these effects carrying over and influencing people. And there's so many examples of it. There's so many demonstrations of it. 
advertisers use it, government uses it. Um, you know, it's uh, it, uh, people in organizational psychology now use it to get their workers uh, at, at their jobs to uh, perform better, to have uh, more productivity and higher customer satisfaction. Uh, it's it's everywhere, but you don't get those effects without the uh, special nature of conscious attention and conscious processing. So there's my version of both sides are right. I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I read all this literature again in great detail. Uh, I don't think they knew it because I think they assumed that when I said unconscious, I meant subliminal. I never meant subliminal. And believe it or not, Jatender, I've never done a subliminal priming study in my life, ever. They've never been, even, even uh, kinds of things I did with what's called paraphobial, which is outside the fringe of your focus of attention. That's still consciously uh, attended to because that's how we read. We read words in advance on a line of text. The paraphobial is out there ahead of us a little, getting us ready to read. That's how we read so quickly. And so that's in the focus of attention. So even when I did quote subliminal, I didn't. It was really focus of conscious attention, paraphobial. And so I've never done anything subliminal. I think subliminal stuff is, is artificial. It, it's certainly not how the human mind evolved over millions of years. There was nothing out there that was subliminal. It was a creation of technology of the 1940s and 50s with tachistoscopes. It didn't exist before that. So uh, it's also very weak and brief and so forth. It's not the kind of stimuli, real world rich environmental stimuli that we evolved to handle. So anyway, uh, you put these together and say, you know what? <laughs> you had to be right about the conscious part because I would never have gotten my effects without that. So I think I'm trying to build the case that the stream of consciousness, the continuity of experience, the conscious field and all these kinds of things uh, are really the, the main source of unconscious processes, which leads to the paradoxical statement that the greatest source of unconscious influences in our life come from consciousness itself. Yeah, and is there any distinction between um, conscious and unconscious at uh, experimental level, for example? Um, and when I say experimental <laughs> right. level means um, if we can kind of, um, if we can kind of, let's say, get the action potential or something at the neuronal activity level, yes, yes. right? Um, right. Uh, is there a distinction there? So people define it in different ways, and they have a, a more stringent or more relaxed. Uh, at the uh, activation level, uh, there's a lot of studies now that show uh, the same uh, brain region, somatosensory cortex, for example, with sensory priming. Uh, the, the same regions that become active when the person is doing it consciously also happens when it happens unconsciously. Uh, people have, have looked at um, the effect of, uh, of uh, unconscious deliberation, for example. You're given a lot of information, which is the best choice? And then you're distracted. You have to call your conscious mind uh, attention is count backwards from 493 by sevens or some kind of task that loads your conscious attention. Do that for five minutes. Other people focus on the question for five minutes and make a decision based on five minutes more of thinking about it. In both those groups of participants, the same areas of the, the mind are active. Uh, it's the same area that was active when they were acquiring the information in the first place. And better decisions actually are often made with the distracted people when the conscious attention is elsewhere. But the same underlying brain regions are, are active in both cases. It's just that one group is not aware of it and the other group is aware of it. 
But as far as the underlying neural activation, uh, they're the same. And there's a lot of work on the somatosensory uh, effects as well. So where you have uh, somatosensory activations from like a warm cup of coffee, for example, which causes people to be more uh, trusting and more uh, generous and more pro-social, more socially warm. This, a hot cup of coffee activates areas in the somatosensory cortex, the same as um, it does with people who are, you know, uh, not, not uh, in a task about social warmth. And the extent of that activation as uh, then you're asked about people, about your family and friends. You're asked about your relationship. You're asked about, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, to think about people or even other kinds of measures like that. The extent that the somatosensory cortex is activated predicts the effect on the social uh, variables. So in both cases. So the awareness of the activations doesn't seem to matter. Um, so there's a lot of evidence like that now. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe here uh, you can describe a bit uh, your hot and cold uh, experiments because yeah, I think that, so, that'll also explain a bit the situation, how the, the somatosensory input can change yeah. the output. So there's there's uh, George Lakoff at Berkeley, uh, was a psycholinguist uh, professor of English, uh, and uh, he, uh, 1980 or so, uh, wrote this wonderful book on metaphors and metaphors as we think metaphorically and analogically. Uh, and he pointed out that we use these terms for the physical world, like something that's hard uh, or something that's uh, distant, like a distant father or something that's uh, uh, high status or low status uh, or something that's warm or some a person that's cold. And in, in every single one of these cases, it's a physical term. It's a term about the physical world. Uh, uh, things are looking up. We have all these metaphors that really refer to physical and spatial uh, terms. Uh, and, and, and people have argued that these are um, sort of the first terms that children or concepts that, that young children learn because they're the material come, information coming in from the outside world and they can form concepts about that very easily without having to think and, and hold information in memory. It's just all coming in. So those are the substrates of, uh, of, of, of language when they start learning actual language at three or four years of age. And so things are built on them. And so this vocabulary makes use of the already existing physical concepts. Now, with the, with the case of warmth, it's actually a special case, uh, as it turns out. Uh, uh, in social psychology, a, a the first ever impression formation, forming a first impression study, was done by Solomon Ash in the 1940s. And what he found was that if you describe somebody in, in terms of six personality traits, you can pick any six you want, and then add the word warm to it or add the word cold to it, the word warm or cold drastically changes, powerfully changes not just the impression, but also how you interpret things like sensitive or demanding. Uh, the, the meaning of, of sensitive is different if a person is warm and sensitive versus cold and sensitive or, or aloof or independent. Any of these things, uh, the meaning changes. So Asher was a gestaltist and thought the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so the word warm and cold were called central traits. They were so important. Now, then we have 70 years of research in social psychology showing that the first basic pass or judgment you make on anybody when you meet them for the first time is whether they're warm or cold. And that basically means, are they a friend or a foe? But we keep using the words warm and cold. So a student named Lawrence Williams and I uh, at Yale um, 
uh, Lawrence had the idea say, you know what, uh, why do we keep saying warm and cold, warm and cold, and, and we don't really take it seriously that maybe there's something to do with actual warmth and actual coldness. And so what we did was we replicated Ash's study from 1944, where everyone has, is, a person is described in terms of these personality traits. Everybody in our study saw the same set of personality traits, except right beforehand, Lawrence at, uh, had said, oh, here, hold this for me for a second. And it was a, a paper cup of coffee. And it was either iced coffee or it was hot coffee. And say, oh, basically, he had to get them their materials or questionnaire to fill out. So here, hold this for a sec. They held it for a second too. Then thank you, and here are your materials to fill out. If they had held the warmer hot cup of coffee, they then gave the results in Ash's condition when the word warm was there, even though in our materials, the word warm was never there. And in the, the cold condition, the same. Iced coffee, and they thought the person was colder and less trustworthy and all these things. And then lots of people have done studies like that since then. Uh, and some of the most interesting have to do with uh, the neuroscience of this effect, where uh, Eisenberger and Inagaki, Naomi Eisenberger and Tristan Inagaki at UCLA imaged people in a, a fMRI study. And it turns out when they held something warm, uh, the same part of the uh, human brain called insula, a small part of insula became active. The same part became active when they were on their phone texting their family and friends. We found that when a person is betrayed in an economics game, like a dictator game or one of these games where uh, you give all your money to somebody else and it triples, and then you'd expect them to give your share back, uh, what if they keep it all and they betray you and they take all the money, which they can do? That's an act of betrayal. And there's an area of insula that reacts to that coldness, that social coldness. It's also the same area as when you're holding something cold. So as it turns out, the area of the human brain that um, becomes active for physical coldness is also the one that becomes active for social coldness and betrayal. The one that is active for physical warmth is also active when you're doing something socially warm or talking to your family and friends. And they followed this up with five years of research showing things like as you track people in a hospital with their actual body temperature or core body temperature, the higher that is, when they're asked at the same time to rate how close they are to their friends and family, they feel closer as their body temperature is increasing. And they feel less close as it decreases without their having any idea what the actual body temperature is. So there's something about our physical warmth and our social uh, warmth connected People uh, like uh, John Bowlby, actually, in, in the UK in the 1960s, argued that, uh, predicted this effect. And he said it's going to happen because in mammals, in all mammals, the act of being held close in breastfeeding uh, conflates the two things, that you're being held and made physically warm at the same time someone's taking care of you as a helpless infant. Someone's got your back, and that's social warmth. You can trust this person. It's the parent or caretaker. Uh, they're feeding you. They're taking care of you, making you feel safe. At the same time, you're feeling the body warmth. So it's like a, a natural mechanism in infants that when they feel the body warmth, it's like, I can trust this person. And I should trust this person. I should follow them or do what they say, or I, I don't have to worry or get away or you know that kind of thing. And over the millions of years, now we have it hardwired. Um, and uh, my favorite story about this is, when we were doing this research, I was watching a cable TV channel 
And I think it was the history of a history channel. And the history channel was doing a documentary on hell. Now, they did this all the time. And back then, they I even called it the hell channel because it was like, oh, another story about mm -hmm. hell. And it was about Dante, of course, uh, of course. And uh, it was about the Inferno. And they were describing the levels of the Inferno. And, you know, what level uh, um, seven are the murderers. You know, there's nine levels. Level seven is the murderers. Level five are the lawyers. My God, you know, what's worse than lawyers and murderers? Oh, level nine, what's down there? And level nine was the level for people who betrayed the trust of close family and friends. Uh, and this is the worst thing of all to Dante, who was actually betrayed himself uh, in the 1300s um, by somebody close to him. Okay. Well, what's the punishment? Contrapasso, punishment that fits the crime, poetic justice. What is it, right? For all of hell, it's fire and brimstone, fiery hell, but not in level nine. For the social coldness of betraying a close family or friend, you are frozen in ice for eternity. The punishment that fits the, the crime and the contrapasso for Dante. Dante knew this 800 years ago or 700 years ago, the connection between uh, uh, social coldness and physical coldness and had the punishment to be frozen in ice forever, which is where Satan is because Satan uh, and Judas, uh, Judas who betrayed Jesus Christ, you know, they're in this lower level, lowest level. So the punishment for Dante, physical coldness for social coldness. So even Dante, of course, very sensitive, wonderful poet, uh, realized and, and felt this connection. And um, then 700 years later, neuroscience and others have shown this connection. So we have these sensory experiences, physical, affecting, and there's so many more than just that warmth one. Um, distance, uh, high, low uh, status. Uh, and I could tell you, you know, all these different uh, uh, studies, but that's basically that the, the body and mind are connected in this way in a uh, more fundamental way than we used to think. This is maybe the last 15 or 20 years of research has, has started to show that. Yeah, interesting. And this is what you call priming, right? Mm. It's one form. I, I think you can call it sensory priming, but the fact that mm -hmm. sensory experiences affect your social judgments and social behavior and things like that. Uh, the, the point of why it's called um, unconscious is that you're not aware of the effects. We're certainly aware of the hot coffee. I mean, I know it's actually it's cold now, but I mean, you're aware of the temperature of the coffee. It's not subliminal. Mm -hmm. But you're not aware of how holding a, a warm cup of coffee or tea affects you in terms of how close and how trusting and generous you feel other people are or are back to them. And it's the connection or consequence of the sensory experience that's unconscious. I wonder what's the scale of it. I mean, do you also see um, something like um, like um, uh, in, in some sort of larger setup, like, uh, you know, at the... The places where the temperature is low, uh, people have a certain tendency. And yeah. then the, do you see something like that also? Yeah, yeah. There's a person who's uh, at, uh, I believe his name is Hans Eiserman, who's done a lot of studies in this in this area. He actually did some of the first um, really interesting studies. 
uh, where if people have a rejection experience in a, a classroom in an experiment, they then believe that the room temperature is colder when they are asked to estimate the, the room temperature. And if they've just been included in a team and chosen for a team or something nice inclusiveness, then they think the temperature of the room is warmer. And he did these kinds of studies about the same time we did our coffee study. So he's followed this up. And if people want to look it up, I think it's called the Human Penguin Project. Uh, and I can give you the spelling of his name, but if you look at this, he has actually done these studies where he looks at social warmth and social coldness all around the world by GPS, by, by actual uh, longitude and latitude, right? It's distance from the equator. Um, and so he's actually done those studies. Now, I don't know, I think it's more complicated than, than uh, people closer to the equator are also more socially warm and people farther away. I think the stereotype is that people are farther away in the Nordic, you know, or the farther North countries are colder people. I, I think that might be a stereotype. Uh, I certainly wouldn't say that that's been shown to be true. Um, you could also think about it as the contrast between uh, the outside world and, and the inside world. And then the contrast coming into a warm fireplace, a warm house, in Sweden, for example, the contrast is more than uh, than than uh, than coming into a house near the tropics because there's no difference. So it, it may be the contrast. I don't know the the last word on this, but I know Iserman uh, and others have been looking exactly at that question um, at uh, these ambient. Uh, I, I do know of something else. There's a person also who did research using what's called daily diary, and what they do is they ask people on their uh, phones. Uh, to answer a series of questions every day. Uh, some of the questions have to do with how warm or hot the day was or how cold the day was. And then they ask them also about the kinds of activities, including things that were helpful to others, generous to others, you know, maybe those kinds of things. And what they find is uh, on the, the days when the person reported being warmer in terms of physical warmth, they also did more of these other things. They were also more generous and kind and did more socially warm things. And so those correlate uh, within the individual as their ambient temperature outside is warm and cold, they actually do more socially warm, socially cold things. Um, again, without realizing the connection between the two. So those studies are out there. Um, so yeah, so, so basically the answer is yes, uh, although I'm not so sure it's that simple. I think that there are probably contrast things going on and uh, um, yeah. Yeah. And how do you uh, describe uh, goal priming? How do I describe it? Um, goals are, are uh, and motivations. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, our field uh, advanced, uh, you know, with the, with the approach of cognitive science, cognitive sciences, the old motivation and, and uh, goal pursuit literature started realizing that, well, goals and motives are represented in a person's mind just like anything else is, like a stereotype or a concept or a knowledge structure of any type, self-schema, self self-knowledge. And if so, that means that they should be uh, able to be activated from outside like anything else is. So you see a chair, your idea of a chair, you see a person, your idea of who they are and, and uh, uh, your memories of them and all the rich information you have becomes active. So the idea is that um, if there's information out there relevant to a certain goal, uh, it might activate the goal as well. So for example, if you pursue the same kind of goal with the same person, 
all the time, or if you're, you pursue the same type of goal in a situation, a particular situation all the time, then merely entering that situation or thinking about that situation or person could also activate that goal because it's part of that knowledge structure and becomes active. So lots of studies, for example, in Holland uh, 20 years ago, uh, they asked university students to take a message to, and they, they had a microphone on them for some other reason, <clears throat> take this message, this letter, to the university president office or to the library and found that if they, their destination was the library, they actually talked more quietly on the way to the library through the same corridors and hallways in the university as the other people going to the president's office. So the idea of going to the library was active in their mind and the way people behave in the library as being quiet was also active without them realizing it. So they're actually quiet on the way to the library. Um, uh, a Zurich uh, economist named Ernst Fehr, F-E-H-R, it's a very famous economist in Zurich, uh, studies investment bankers. And he's interested in understanding uh, greed, but also understanding uh, breaking the rules and doing things uh, to make more money for your bank, which are sort of unethical or uh, dishonest. And he wants to study dishonesty in investment bankers. What he did was to... Um, study actual Zurich investment bankers when they were at home on the weekend uh, and they got an email and uh, in, in the email they uh, were, were asked questions and um, one group was asked to uh, type in a description of their workplace uh, where they work Monday through Friday. Other people weren't. Okay. Now, the people who were asked to type in just a physical description of what the office looked like, the desk arrangements, uh, who knows what, uh, are, are the condition where he's actually activated their workplace representation. Now, he's assuming that the workplace may trigger goals that they have at the workplace. So then he asked people to do something which required honesty, and that is flip a coin at home uh, 10 or 20 times and say how many heads on the coin, on the Swiss francs, uh, did, they, did they flip? And for every head of the coin they flipped, they got 20 francs. So, you know, this could be 100 or 200 Swiss francs you could win. No one knew the if you were telling the truth or not. You just were supposed to tell the honest answer. And they compared uh, the two groups in terms of what you'd expect by chance by the binomial theorem. And when people were not asked about their workplace first, it turns out the distribution of heads that they flipped in that group corresponded almost perfectly to chance. So in other words, this is what you'd expect as a distribution from chance alone, meaning they were honest, you'd assume. The others, it shifted to the right. So, so oh, I'm so lucky. I, 20 out of 20 heads. Oh, look, lucky me. So the, the distribution of the people who had first written down their workplace shifted. So they were over-reporting. Uh, uh, getting heads and getting more money probably than they should. It was more than you expect by chance. Now, all they did was to ask about their workplace, but the idea was the goal that you pursue as far as making as much money as possible, not being perhaps as ethical, maybe dishonest, maybe greedy. All those kinds of goals are tied to the situation, tied to the workplace, and they become active without you realizing it. So again, nothing subliminal, just uh, activating the representation of workplace activated those goals, which played out in this task that he gave them uh, on the coin flipping.
And that was a nature paper around 2014, 2015. So those are the examples of how goals and motives and so forth can be activated by situations. It can be activated by certain people that you have a certain goal with, just by merely thinking about that person indirectly. Uh, you don't even have to be thinking about them in terms of your relation with them or, you know, about your workplace, about what you do at work. You're just physically, you know, answering, physically describing the workplace. But these mere activations put these things act and make them active. And then they play out in the present because they're active in the present. Even though you're not at work right now, you're not with that person right now. Interesting. Yeah. The other kind of priming that you study is the this trust priming. So is it different than the goal and um, and the other priming that you mentioned? I'm not sure what you, when you say trust, trust priming. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, the, the, where we have, um, where we have, uh, in, 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 well, the trust work that we've done has always been with warmth, you know, with the, with the warmth and other people have done that with children, for example, and, um, and things like that. So I'm not sure what's different, what's separate from that. Yeah. Uh, let's, for example, uh, think of it in this terms that the um, in the social setup, it can be also the um, ideologies, political ideologies, for example, right, where we uh, we tend to uh, we may have certain belief, uh, certain ideology because of, let's say, trust issues. Right. Um, I mean, or we can talk about simply the um, the um, idea of pathogens or you know, infections, for example. Oh, right, right. Okay, so, so, so that's yeah, also a, uh, a kind of the this behavior that, that we may have because of the trust issues, right? Right. So, so uh, this is a, a fascinating. I've only done a couple studies or been involved with them, but uh, people in political psychology uh, in that field have been doing this work on um, uh, fear, basically fear uh, and safety. And uh, and and uh, I, I believe this is also in Europe and not just in the U.S. But um, uh, the idea is that basically threat and uh, being afraid or uh, worried for safety causes people in general to shift in a conservative direction on social issues and and be against social change and things like that. So there's 30 years now research showing that if you threaten a liberal person, a person who's on the left, political left. If you threaten them, make them scared uh, physically in an experiment, their attitudes and beliefs shift to become more conservative. So you can uh, move a liberal to become more conservative if they feel threat and unsafe. Okay, what we did uh, five years ago or so was to see if we, it worked the other way as well. And so uh, no one had ever shown that you can make conservative more liberal or someone on the right more uh, towards the left. And it, we thought, well, the same thing should happen, but we just need to make people feel totally safe. So we had them feel absolutely safe by having them imagine uh, a genie <laughs> had come to them and given them a superpower. And the superpower was that they could not be physically harmed. If they a knife would not cut them, if they fell, they wouldn't get hurt. Uh, bullets would bounce off like Superman. Uh, they were absolutely physically safe. And so they imagined this very richly for a while. And then we gave them standard measures of social attitudes, which have always shown these big differences between liberals and conservatives. And suddenly the conservatives are like the liberals. I mean, uh, they in a control condition, there's very different. But after this imagining to be totally safe, 
they come down to be the same uh, attitudes about social issues. In the US, this would be about abortion, about same-sex marriage, about certain drugs being legalized. I mean, this classic kinds of sets of social attitudes that show these differences. Suddenly there's no difference. So feeling very safe causes conservatives to be more liberal temporarily. We don't think this is a permanent change. Uh, they're also more open to social change in general, which is the how you define a conservative or a liberal. Uh, openness to change in society and things like that. So, but it works both ways. So politicians, of course, at least in the US, we can, we have famous examples of politicians saying not to be afraid. Uh, other politicians basically making us to be afraid of uh, immigration or anything else. Uh, and you can see who would be the one who wants to make you afraid. It's a conservative. Who's the one who wants to make you feel you're safe is the, is the liberal. Uh, and that that corresponds. So politicians have known this for a long time, um, but we do get those effects uh, of rich imagination. Um, the the, uh, the the pandemic and the uh, bacteria and infection one is fascinating because some people have pointed out uh, that there's a metaphor between um, uh, uh, germs and and viruses coming into your body and uh, immigrants coming into your country. So it's almost like uh, there's a metaphor analogy of, uh, of, of, uh, of, un, um, of different kinds of, uh, of creatures, I guess, if you want to say, you know, immigrants and, and, and viruses coming into uh, where, where you are already and safe and so forth. So into your body, they can do damage or immigrants, uh, according to this analogy, would then do damage to your country culture or, or break all the laws or something like that. So historically, you know, disease has been a, a real problem. And as you know, I mean, uh, disease was a major killer of people, infections and diseases up until the, you know, when we finally had penicillin and antibiotics, I mean, until 1900 or 1920, uh, you know, people would just, uh, plagues and people would drop dead of, uh, of infections. We, we had a, obviously a civil war in the United States about 1860. And it turns out that more people died from infections in the Civil War than died from from gun bullets or for from bayonets. Uh, more died from infections. I had an actual uh, ancestor who was in the Civil War and died from an infection as a prisoner of war in South Carolina. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, something we all have to watch out for and be very careful. So through evolution, we're supposed to be very careful of anything that's impure has germs, could cause infections. Uh, so we're naturally very wary of that. If you make this analogy then, so what we did, okay, what do we do in our study? We had people come in during actually a, a previous uh, flu epidemic, the H1N1, the bird flu. Uh, and we, um, <clears throat> we had them come in and then we uh, asked them that they, um, uh, well, we gave them a chance to disinfect their hands. Uh, we, um, we asked them attitude towards immigration, and then we asked them afterwards, uh, after we reminded them of the threat of the flu, we asked them afterwards if they'd had the flu shot. And people who had, we reminded about the flu, but had not had the flu shot, then had uh, a more negative attitudes towards immigration. Immigration, which has nothing to do with, not really to do with the flu, um, but they were reminded of this threat of the flu, they weren't, they had not had the flu shot yet, so they felt uh, threatened or vulnerable to the flu virus. 
So they had more negative attitudes about immigration. If they had had the flu shot and protected against the flu, reminding of them of that reminded them that they were safe from this virus and they had more positive attitudes towards immigration. So these are Yale students and they're randomly assigned to one condition or the other. Uh, we did the same thing with the disinfectant. If we gave them a chance to disinfect, they had more positive attitudes towards, towards uh, immigration. And if we did not give them that chance after warning them about the dangers of the flu, they had more negative attitudes towards immigration. So these social issues and these political um, uh, manipulations, you know, play into very deep, important social uh, evolved motivations, you know, for uh, safety and survival, uh, for keeping us safe from disease and germs, and also for keeping us safe from harm in other ways. Yeah, so the change in the in the in the political stance, or let's say the stance of the decision making. I mean, we can take our example. So you were at the beginning of the conversation. You were talking about uh, these AI-based robots that they may kill humanity and stuff, right? So if if we give you a superpower, right, that there'll be a button which you can press and probably kill all the robots if uh, the time <laughs> comes, right? Uh, yeah. Then you can change your stance, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If they if they do that, then we feel safer about that. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I, you know, Isaac, as a, a kid, I read the, this uh, science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, uh -huh. who wrote uh, the Foundation series and uh, um, other series. And one was the robot series. And uh, I've, I'm almost done with all of it. And I'm reading the robots right now. But Asimov had a very benign uh, view of robots back in the 1950s. And so and and they had the laws of robotics and the laws of robotics were about a robot could never harm a human being and never let a human being come to harm and these kinds of things. And so in all the books, the robots, the last thing they could ever do was to harm a human being, right? So we clearly were very feeling very safe with all the robots uh, who are helping. And some, he goes on other planets and in the future, and then there's planets that are run by robots and they're servants for everybody and things like that. But that's <laughs> a, a fairly naive, I think, you know, looking back on it, that, uh, that uh, we, we would only have robots ever that um, uh, would be benevolent and always had human, uh, put human beings ahead of themselves and things like that. And that's, that's not necessarily the way things are gonna be. I mean, um, he, he very conveniently made that because the positronic brain that he created that would create these human humaniform robots had built, baked in and built into it these laws of robotics. And they were not made by governments. They were made by the, of course, U.S. robotic company. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. He was he was Brooklyn. I, Asimov was born in Brooklyn. So anyway, yeah, it's it's not at, at all uh, so sure that uh, AGIs and robots will be uh, only looking out for the welfare of humans and would perish themselves and self destruct if if need be to preserve humans. I just I don't think that's what's really going to happen. It'd be nice, but no. <laughs> yeah, but the, the the bottom line is, or the important thing is that uh, this is how we can kind of change the stance of the people, right? Right. If, yeah. Um, but so have you tried like, or is there any cultural priming in these experiments? Yeah, you know, these are beautiful studies. I love the cultural stuff. 
for one thing, if you look at the, if you look at cultural psychology, the field of cultural psychology, they use priming all the time as a method, because the the the, the used to be the old cultural psychology would say, oh, for example, East Asians are different than North Americans, and here's the difference on these different measures. But that doesn't say anything about what's really the cause and what's really the mechanism, because there's so many things that are different uh, between uh, people who live in East Asia and people in North America. Which of these many things is the actual reason for this difference? So what uh, cultural psychology uh, uh, has done, uh, and uh, a wonderful person in this field is Daphna Oyserman of the University of Southern California and has written uh, chapters and, uh, and articles on using priming in cultural psychology, is they temporarily activate one particular uh, thing that they think is the difference. Now, maybe it's a way of thinking of people as a, a sort of a warm intrapersonal kind of orientation, like communal orientation, uh, thinking of yourself as a member of a group and the group's good, not your individual, you know, more collective. In, as opposed to individualistic. You can make people think more collectively about uh, it's the good of the group that matters, not me as an individual and so forth and so on. I should go along to help the group, not to look up my own interests. Okay, so this kind of collective individualistic thing. So now that if that's your theory of the difference between the cultures, well, then you should be able to activate or prime the collectivist or the individualist in any person, not just a member of one culture or the other, and show that they also differ in this way. So activating collectivist or individualist changes the results in line with what you'd expect from the two cultures. And this incredible work has taken people who are, for example, East Asian, but prime them to be individualist and people who are University of Michigan, North American college students and prime them to be collectivist. And it flips. So the collectivist primed North Americans now be, uh, answer questions and, and behave as if they're East Asian. And the East Asians in, made to temporarily be individualistic, give responses like the North Americans. Now that's how priming can be used in, in cultural psychology to pinpoint the exact mechanism they think is responsible for these cultural differences. But be, beyond that, the ideologies are, are pretty neat. Um, uh, a long time, I haven't followed this up, but uh, uh, Eric Yulman and Andy Pullman and, and I, and I was sort of helping them, but it was their idea, uh, looked at ideological differences. Uh, 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 for example, Americans uh, uh, sort of uniquely have this conflation of uh, the Puritan and the Protestant ethic, where the Puritan ethic, it's like these founding ideologies from the 1600s in the U.S., the Puritan one is about anti-promiscuity and you should be prim and proper and, and, and chaste and all this, and the, uh, which comes from a religious group. Uh, and the uh, Protestant, because Calvinist idea of that, uh, you, the harder you work uh, on earth, the higher your place in heaven. So work, 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 uh, and that gets you a place in heaven. So that's a, a work hard Protestant ethic. It turns out in the U.S. those are combined, so that if you uh, tell, talk about a person who's working very hard and uh, is a, a dishwasher, works in a restaurant at a low-paying job, and wins the lottery, wins millions of dollars, but doesn't quit her job as a dishwasher. Oh, Americans love this person. Everyone else in the world that we've gathered data thinks this person is absolutely crazy. 
why would you keep working at this menial job if you're a millionaire and have won the lottery? But Americans love this person because uh, they're still working hard even though they've got all this money. If you remind people of somebody in the Protestant ethic, it also activates in Americans only the Puritan ethic. So this hardworking dishwasher, hearing about that person makes you also think that uh, your high school dress code should be more uh, conservative and you shouldn't have people wear, have clothes that show parts of the body or skin or anything like that. So it makes the, why, logically this shouldn't happen, but it shows how ideologies and founding ideologies can cause these kinds of uh, judgmental or cognitive effects because only in America are these two combined. But they've also done work with Asian Americans, which is nice also. Uh, Asian Americans who came over from uh, 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 to America from Asia uh, at age five or later. So they have early years in the Asian culture and now are living in the US. Um, and they, uh, if you remind them of their Asian identity um, in the sense of, uh, of what is your favorite uh, Asian food? What is your favorite Asian movie? What is your favorite Asian music group? And ask those questions. Or what's your favorite American food? What's your favorite American movie? What's your favorite American music group? Those kinds of things. If an Asian American is asked first about their Asian uh, preferences, they no longer show these Puritan Protestant effects. But if they're asked about the American ones, they do. So that's fascinating to me because basically when you come into a culture and you soak up the culture, you're soaking up ideologies from 400 years ago. And of course, we're United States is a relatively recent country, right? And imagine in countries with a, a deeper, longer historical uh, you know, life, um, those same effects should happen. But cultures cause people, especially early in life, to soak up beliefs about what's right and wrong, values, and not to realize it because it happened, you know, before we're four or five years old, and uh, we we don't remember, um, we don't have explicit memories for those years. Uh, we just have the implicit effects of these ideologies and how they guide our moral uh, values and judgments of other people and behavior and things like that. And and really, we all soak it up wherever we're born, uh, wherever we. Uh, you probably heard of Stink, Steven Pinker, of course, uh, the Harvard professor who wrote um, uh, uh, many books, but I think it was Language Instinct. But he, he, this is an obvious point, but it's a, it's a profound point. And that is you can take any human infant born today, anywhere in the world, take it to another culture, and in four or five years, they will speak that language of the new, new place. They will have all the values and cultural values of that new place and none of where they came from. It's nothing at all about where you're born and even who you're uh, born um, to. It's the culture that you were raised. And, and there's so many examples of that. It's not at all about where you're born. It's about where you grow up and, and you soak up like a sponge, like of uh, epigenetically, I guess, right? Um, all these cultural beliefs and, and rule systems that allow you then to function as a, a person in that society as an adult. Yeah, and it's truly fascinating, the this aspect. Um, and probably we'll, we'll talk more about it, but before that, so these, this priming effects, does it have to be, for example, um, in person? Can these priming effects be on like through, I don't know, social media, for example? Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, even worse. I mean, yes, yes, yes. So uh, uh, 
and these are sociologists who have done these studies, like Nicholas Christakis, for example, yeah. James Fowler, right? And they've written books about connectedness, you know, these books and connected. Uh, and what they show is that uh, of social media, uh, the behavior and the and the moods and the uh, things like depression, happiness, cooperation, all these things spread through social media. So that uh, depending on uh, and not just social media, but things like uh, uh, groups, people who work who all work at the same large company or uh, have the same bank or alumni association or something like that. So any social group, um, there are people, who, who do you know? You know these people, they know people, and you can sort of draw a map of the connections between people in a network. And any of these characteristics, uh, obesity even, uh, uh, spreads so that you are more likely to be obese if someone is obese two or three steps away from you, even though you don't know that person. They know somebody who knows somebody who knows you. And uh, the closer, of course, they are in that network, the more, more of an effect they have on you. But all of these things are shown in these network analyses and depression, happiness, all of these things to spread through these networks. Um, uh, and uh, it's the only mechanism possible is that it's a contagion effect of the people who actually see and know and, and talk to each other. But it also could be a mood effect. You know, Facebook has actually done experiments and um uh, in their EULA, their end user license agreement, uh, they actually have a small little thing that where you consent to this if you if you use Facebook, where they manipulated the news feed of people. This is about six years ago, uh, to be either more positive 20% or or more negative 20% in mood than usual. And then they looked to see how those people posted and th their moods through language analysis linguistic analysis over the next five days. And by manipulating your mood to be 20% more positive than it would have been, you yourself are more positive in your posts than what you say in your posts for the next five days. Same thing happens if it's 20% more negative. And this was 700,000 people uh, that they studied. So it's an enormous group of people. It's very significant statistically. But what it shows is that what other what you read other people's posts and the things you read on social media directly affects your own mood and your own behavior. Again, not I think if you ask people, does this happen to them? I think 99 point something percent would say no, it doesn't happen to me. I don't feel different. I don't do things different depending on what I read on Facebook or Twitter or anything. Uh, and yet it does. Um, and again, uh, so it's an unconscious effect in the sense that we don't know what's happening to us, but we're very much vulnerable to the behavior and to the moods and statements and things of other people uh, that we read on social media. Yeah, so the so these effects, they are like really strong and uh, the, the effects are also kind of so widespread that even from these uh, kind of alternative medias, we can be affected, right? You know, this is the thing, you know, how I, I don't know if you, I, I don't really, I used to, but I don't really use it much anymore, but uh, how people give you uh, on Facebook, uh, send you friend requests. They want to be your friend. Not, most of these people who send me friend requests in the past, you know, I don't know who they are. They know somebody who knows somebody and it was, I was suggested as a possible friend. Fine. So of the hundreds of people, my so-called friends, you know, I don't have hundreds of friends. I don't know very many people who have hundreds of friends, but on Facebook, I have hundreds of friends, but I don't know most of them. And we say, oh, yes, we say, oh, yes, fine. They want to be my friend. Who, who would say no? 
Well, you know, you might want to reconsider that because whatever problem they might have is going to spread to you. You're opening yourself up with all these people you don't know to all these effects coming through your social network. And these effects are there and they're in every single possible direction. Um, it, it could be good. It could be bad. You don't know. But you're you're just basically opening yourself up to be vulnerable to being influenced by all these people you don't even know. And I mean, nowadays, um, of course, because of social media, are in the social in number of social interactions they have increased, right? Um, I mean, before in the past we would interact with 10, 20 people, 50 max, but now we can interact with even 500 people. So, what's the impact of that uh, in our daily lives? It just amplifies. I mean, all these effects of networks in the past have just been amplified. Who knows how many times? But you know, 10, 20, 30 times, or something like that. And I think everyone's pointed out how how it's affected politics and affected uh, um, uh, us versus them tribalism. At least uh, in American culture, you know what I notice and everyone notices is it's uh, uh, you know neighbor against neighbor, and uh, even within families. Uh, there's now divisions and people you don't talk to, even though they were, you know, we were close as families uh, for so long because of political beliefs and because of these strong opinions and all that. So it's exacerbated uh, uh, divisions and, and tribalism, which is our instinct. Our, our instincts, I think it was Karl Popper, right, the philosopher uh, who wrote uh, not just the logic of scientific discovery, which was awesome because uh, it's a separate conversation, but he also was in exile as a Jew and uh, spent World War II, uh, got out of Vienna and, and uh, lived in New Zealand and um, uh, wrote this book during the war um, called The Open Society and Its Enemies. It's an awesome book. But it really makes the point is how fragile democracy is as a new innovation of government, how recent it is, and how it's so easy for people to fall back into their long, long-term evolved tribal us versus them roots. Demagogues, it's so easy. And clearly it's happening in Israel. Right now it's happening in the US. It has been happening. Uh, and it's very easy to have people fall into this us versus them tribalism. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. It's the cheapest shot in politics. Uh, what's difficult is preserving democracies, uh, which are unusual in the history of, of humans. And uh, Karl Popper wrote that in 1946. It's just absolutely awesome book. Yeah, I, I should check it out, definitely. You'd love it. Uh, I, I, I guarantee you'd love it. He basically calls out Plato as being a, a, a criminal and a horrible person. And uh, he got into a lot of trouble with philosophy for that. But he did. And he has he has good reasons, actually. Nice. But uh, here then probably we'll have to talk about uh, something like positive or negative priming, right? I mean, uh, so you mentioned Nick Christakis. I did have a conversation with him. And oh, yeah. oh, this is what I really uh, love about his work, that the the, the, the the point that he highlighted in his book, the first book, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, that the means, I mean, of course, we have differences, but then there are uh, something common uh, uh, there are some abilities which all all of us we have right and that's like the positive side of it so uh, from that sense um what i would expect is that with this global globalization the things would be different means like it would be more positive we would be more open and stuff right 
um i mean it's so i have that kind of steven pinker's point of view of the world like yeah. the things are getting better according to me but then of yeah. course it it depends what data shows and 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 that stuff right 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 overall if you look at the yeah. historical trend i mean the the better angels of our nature was one of pinker's books and points out how much safer our, our worlds are in general, you know, than they were even a thousand years ago. Yeah. Uh, and that's and these things historically long term trends are definitely true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't I know. I am, of... I'm more of a pessimist because of climate change and because mm -hmm. of other things. Uh, but, you know. Yeah. But 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 I think it's it's a lot also about the uh, like our physical aggression has changed to more like language aggression that I can say, um, or uh, but but I think it will will find out a way probably just a matter of matter of time according to me. But let's see. Right. All right, like they used um, to say, you know, from your lips to God's ears, right? I mean, I hope that works out that way. <laughs> yeah, but then uh, this raises the important point, and uh, you've mentioned about uh, evolution quite a few times. So let's then talk about the evolution of unconsciousness and conscious mind. So which comes first? Let's let's start from there. <laughs> well, it has to be that unconscious processes came first. I mean, there's a lot of work on the um, anthropology of uh, of uh, consciousness and the evolution of consciousness uh, and looking at different kinds of clues from uh, the past about skulls and brain sizes and um, cave paintings in France and all these kinds of things. And basically uh, the people who wrote these uh, uh, books in the 1990s and since have pretty much uh, concluded um, consciousness as we think of it now, as we experience it in, in our own lives. Uh, it was a relatively very recent evolutionary development. It happened around 100,000 years ago, maybe. Um, and this was a great expansion in the, in, the, in the brain size. People have talked about um, coming out of the trees in the savannas and living on the ground instead, uh, which for whatever reason, uh, maybe a drought happened um, you know, a long time ago. Uh, and how it started to put a value on intelligence. It put a value on uh, interact on, on sticking together as groups, coordinating activities and groups, uh, and communication, which is if you're going to work as a group, you need to communicate with each other. So language starts developing, uh, uh, visual uh, forms of communication and, and instruction start developing. And when that starts developing, then it's possible to communicate and share knowledge to children and younger members of your, uh, which is our huge advantage as a species, that we share knowledge and pass knowledge down to generations um, uh, through uh, verbal and written kinds of uh, methods. Uh, and that's where we stay, that's where we start taking off in terms of civilization, in terms of advancing past uh, other, uh, other species. But this only happened about, you know, 80 to 100,000 years ago, as far as they can tell, by the um, the expansion of the brain, which is necessary for living on the ground instead of the trees, all these kinds of things. Um, so, well, before that, the, we did pretty well. <laughs> we made it to that point uh, after hundreds of millions of years, however long we've been around as uh, animals uh, on the species, uh, on the planet, I'm sorry. Um, and so we had to do things basically unconsciously. And when people look at the, the way the brain is organized, uh, it's interesting because it's really, really very um, great evolutionary psychology thinkers. Uh, Paul Rosen at, at Virginia, for example, 
uh, Herb, Herbert Simon won the Nobel Prize, who was a father of artificial intelligence, uh, people like that, that essentially we have modules that do different kinds of tasks and they operate unconsciously. And what consciousness gave us was access to those that we could sort of strategically or tactically change or alter, use them strategically instead of having just the outputs uh, drive our uh, responses just by themselves. So the unconscious parts of our mind are sort of the starting points, the inputs into our conscious processes. And mostly our mind works like that. And one way to, to show this is uh, when people have damage to their um, trauma, to their, their heads, to their brains, and lose uh, explicit memory, so they're amnesic, uh, or, or strokes possibly could cause this, most uh, the uh, unconscious uh, processes of the mind are intact. What they lose is the conscious explicit memory, which is there's only one memory, there's dozens of memory systems. Every part of our, our mind has the kind of a memory system to it, but they all operate unconsciously or implicitly except for one, which is the explicit memory. If the explicit memory gets knocked out and all the studies in amnesics the last 50 years have shown, almost all of the implicit ones are still intact. So, and there's lots of different ones that have different characteristics, different uh, lengths of time that they hold information, uh, short-term, long-term, all these things. So all these uh, tests of priming, for example, work on amnesics. You can prime and cause things of uh, 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 one day, have the amnesic come back two days later, and they show a priming effect of the earlier experience, even though they don't even remember being in your building before. They have no explicit memory for this, but they show all the intact priming effects. And, and this is the area of implicit memory uh, that's been around since the 60s and especially the 80s. But all the work on, on amnesics show that they show all the, the implicit memory and priming effects that normal, uh, not uh, traumatic injury or the people without amnesia show. They just don't have explicit memory. So all these things work fine unconsciously. It's the new uh, explicit that can get knocked out. Um, and it's very fragile and it's very special. Uh, but even when it's gone, and it doesn't work the other way. For example, the trauma doesn't knock out the implicit ones and leave the explicit ones. It's only the other way around. So our brain mostly operates in all these different ways, implicitly or unconsciously. And we now have this special conscious access to these things, which is great, but it's recent and it's fragile. And unfortunately with these amnesic cases, you know, it can be knocked out and then they can, they have the implicit functions. You know, there's a famous uh, uh, Dr. Clapared uh, in, uh, I think it was Geneva in 1911, who was treating a densely amnesic woman who had Korsakoff syndrome. And his famous story is that uh, every day when she came in for an appointment with Dr. Clapperhead, uh, she thought it was the first time she was meeting him every single day. And so they went through this elaborate, you know, reading and shaking hands thing. Well, one day he put a tack in his hand, you know, and he, he shook the hand and ah, and it hurt. And, uh, you know, that wasn't very nice of him. He pranked her. What he wanted to see was what happened the next time. So the next day she comes in. Oh, Dr. Clapperhead, nice to meet you. I've heard so much about you. I've never met you before, of course. And he reaches out his hand and she reaches out her hand. And it's the last second she pulls it away. And she has no idea why she did this. And she's like, um, uh, uh, flummoxed, you know. Oh, must a lady always offer her hand to a gentleman? Oh, no, it's like just some Victorian kind of thing like that. Um, it's like, you know, she didn't have explicit memory. 
of the previous day with the tack, but her hand did. <laughs> her hand said, uh-uh, I'm not going to fall for this again. And so the implicit uh, system kept her safe, basically. And uh, and that memory system prevented her from further you know, pain and so forth, but the explicit memory wasn't there. Yeah, I haven't mentioned my favorite example so far of the unconscious mind. It's like it's the ping pong game. Although if if people have seen like really the, the nice ping pong game, I mean the 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 shots and the actions are so fast that it's it's difficult to kind of explain it that a player is consciously thinking about that shot and playing it. You know, it has to be some some sort of unconscious Absolutely. mind, and that's why like Absolutely. at the beginning I asked you if there is a distinction between. Uh, conscious and unconscious processes uh, at the uh, neuronal level or at the brain level, for example, because right. I think from taking like these two uh, scenarios, we can kind of explain that it has to be unconscious uh, right. action, you know, which is making a player to uh, to kind of play that uh, that game. Right. right. So, so there's procedural learning and procedural knowledge operates a lot. A lot of it operates totally unconsciously. However, however. Uh, at another way to define unconscious and conscious, the person um, intends to play ping pong, right, is, is choosing. So once you start, so, so for example, driving a car for an experienced driver can be very unconscious in the sense of uh, while it's happening, all the things going on, attention can be somewhere else, but all these things are operating very well. But they still intended to get in the car and drive. It's not really the case that they, oh, a car, and they get in without meaning to and drive away, right? So Dan Schachter at Harvard, who was the, one of the people who started work on implicit memory, tells the story of a patient, amnesic patient that he has, who um, uh, plays golf with, with him, or used to play golf with him. And he said, you know, this guy, I'd say, oh, let's go play golf. Said, oh, I've never played before. Um, okay. Uh, well, you know, try it. Maybe you might like it. It turns out this guy was an accomplished amateur golfer and didn't remember this. And so didn't ever remember playing golf. And yet when they play golf, he would hit these difficult shots out of sand traps or, you know, these kinds of things perfectly, you know, like, like your ping pong example, all the muscle memory and procedural memory was there and played really well. Says, oh, well, I guess I'm good at this game. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you played it for 30 years, you know, but he didn't remember any of that. So he had all the procedural and everything else, but no, no explicit memory of ever playing golf before. Like, I guess that might happen to somebody who is uh, good at ping pong. Yeah. And yeah, I know I see these these amazing ping pong players and like, there's no way. I mean, I, I, can, yeah. I can't understand how anyone could do that, what, what they do. Because yeah. I played as a kid, you know, I, I, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And so, so going back to the um, the evolution of conscious and unconscious uh, mind, so the so your explanation it gives a sense that um like the it doesn't happen in other species or what what's what's your point on that right what, what um, is it that what do you what do you what like are you the, asking the about unconscious mind in other species for example the evolution well, it, it's of all it's mostly unconscious in all species so that's the thing uh, the, these unconscious mechanisms that are found in people are also found in many others like for example there's a tendency to approach uh, something that's positive or good for you, food, or for example, approach uh, something that's uh, negative, you, you avoid or withdraw from. And that's found in even single cell paramecia. You know, even, even single cell organisms uh, show this uh, withdrawing from something that's like an electric uh, wire 
in their solution, you know, uh, in their petri dish or going towards food. I mean, this approach avoidance or approach withdrawal, you know, basic idea is there in, in all in all animals, all species, even these very primitive uh, protozoa. So, you know, these unconscious mechanisms are largely shared. It's the it's the ability to uh, understand and use and override them if there's a, a, a reason to override them temporarily. Um, that, uh, you know, people have talked about consciousness being a, a way to uh, resolve conflicts uh, between action systems that allows us to do something different than what our body is screaming at us to do, like to hold our, our breath underwater, or I think a better example, uh, which has happened to me, uh, of bringing a hot, let's say you have friends over for dinner and um, you're bringing a hot dish, a hot dish out of the oven to the table and you didn't uh, uh, get enough protection for your fingers, you know, you didn't get enough of a towel or a cover. And so halfway to the table in front of your guests, you know, it's like <laughs> your hands are burning and it's so painful and you're doing everything you can not to drop it, but your body is telling you to drop it and you may not make it. You may at some point tissue damage, you may drop it anyway, but the ability to control what that unconscious drop this, you know, that's a social thing. Who cares if, if you were an animal, would an animal keep carrying it for a fellow animal? No, I mean, it would drop it immediately because of the pain. But our ability to override and control these unconscious kinds of tendencies, you know, is what consciousness gives us. Um, so we can do things even better because sometimes there's a, a reason to override them. And, and, and that's a wonderful advantage we've got. But most of the animals and most of the you know existing um, uh, life forms are operating unconsciously in the sense they don't have that ability to override the the pre-wired stuff. And what do you think about the uh, consciousness in other species? Oh, sure. Why not? I have no problem with that. I mean, you know, you see, you see uh, animals do things. Um, I remember when they said, oh, you know, only people have theory of mind. Only people think about the brain states and mind states of others and do things strategically. And then they started saying, hey, you know, the African gray parrot has theory of mind and, and uh, it's got a nice juicy piece of food it's trying to hide. What does it do? It looks around to see if any other parrots are looking right now before it puts it in the hiding place. And if it sees other parents watching it, it, it you know, it won't do that. And so it, it basically has a, a theory of what's in the other's mind and what their intentions would be if they saw where the food was being uh, held, right? So, um, and, and that's just an, a recent example, but uh, there are many animals. It, it's, it's almost as if we define what human consciousness is and say, oh, we're special. And then other animals are found to have it. And then we sort of move the, the goalpost, as they say, or we move the bar. Oh, well, that doesn't count. Now it's even more than, you know. So uh, if you had left the bar where it was originally, many, many animals have what we have. Um, what they tend not to have is the sharing of information, the, the more cooperation, communal sharing and, and, and teaching the young, uh, you know, and a way to do that in, in uh, you know, as we have our institutions and so forth. I mean, that seems to be the big one. That's civilization is dependent on that kind of passing down of information to build on previous generations. And I, you know, I wouldn't push that absolutely, but I mean, basically that's what it is. But on the other hand, we have social primates, social insects, for example, right? And we, we've 
see a lot of things there also that which are quite common i mean uh beehive yeah. for example right i mean <laughs> so the oh, fact yeah. that uh be they they can maintain that beehive in in certain way that that's all, yeah. already a kind of a social phenomena right that yeah yeah as prairie dog we have prairie dogs in the american west and west oh it's amazing i mean these yeah. these underground things and the it's like a beehive underground you know with yeah. the, the prairie dogs and stuff and and the uh, fishes in the desert in the sahara that uh jump from one puddle of water to another one far away how do they, and without being able to see it, you know, and to flip up and land in it exactly right and things like that. I mean, there's specialized kinds of intelligences, uh, but they're, you know, they're almost like the difference between AI and AGI, you know, whether artificial intelligence for certain things versus an artificial general intelligence, which is, you know, like uh, for everything and a global kind of a, a consciousness. So it's, it's specialized versus a global adaptation that transcends certain situations. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, this is an old fashioned view to say that people are special and different and, you know, it's a creationist kind of thing, you know, like the, the people exactly. are God in God's image and no other animal is this kind of stuff is like 1850s stuff, you know? Yeah. So let's go back to our unconscious mind, uh, what we were discussing and take a few questions um, in general uh, that probably also people can use, understand. So for example, can we train our unconscious mind? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, in fact, the people who are the best, so there's a, been a revolution in the area of self-regulation and, and self-control research for the last, say, 10 years. Uh, and people in that area um, there's a standard questionnaire that um, you can find online, which is uh, 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 which if you uh, finding the answers on this question, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. I know the author of it, um, uh, June Tangney. So it's T-A-N-G-N-E-Y. And if you look up uh, a, a, a scale about self-control, self-regulation, about 2003, maybe it's online. People can take it now. The answers on that questionnaire are like 10 items. The answers predict how much money they're making, their income. They predict how long they've been in a relationship. It negatively predicts breakups and divorces. It pre negatively predicts, uh, um, you know, in other words, the higher you score on that, the happier you, you tend to be, the more successful you tend to be, the richer you tend to be, the more unstable relationships you tend to be, all the good things. Okay, so fine. So now the question is, what are these people doing who score high compared to people who score low? And it used to be, oh, they have willpower. They have perseverance, perseverance. They, they stick to things. They try hard, struggle, struggle. They have willpower. It turns out, no, that's not the difference. The difference is the people who are the effective self-regulators rely on easy ways to get the things done they want, like develop good habits or to have primes or cues in their world to keep reminding them to do the right thing. Uh, they do the, the, the new habit of learning to meditate or meditating every day or exercising every day or uh, are not drinking or not eating uh, too much uh, fatty food or dieting. All the things that they want to accomplish, they make their environment, their world support that so that they always uh, exercise or meditate at the same time every day in the same location so that they're tying their, their cues to what they want to do outside of themselves so that the cues come in from outside without their having to remember. 
without their having to consciously, effortfully think about uh, these things all the time. So the way these people are effective is by structuring their world to support their activities, to make it less of a conscious, effortful thing, not more of one. And that's what all these, the, the Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book Grit, for example, uh, and other people uh, who do this research all have come to this conclusion. I mean, almost universally in the last you know, 12, 13 years. And it's a completely different view of effective self-regulation and self-control. So that's the way to do it. Make things easy for yourself. Uh, make things so that you don't have to think about, you don't have to remember because our conscious mind is doing lots of things. It can't always remember. It may miss opportunities. It may forget to do the good thing it wants to do. There's lots of good intentions that don't get carried out because we forget to do them. Uh, we get distracted or we have other things on our mind. So let's take all that off and put it offload it to the outside world of our apartments or our homes um, in a way that, um, that that provides the structure. You know, it's, it's another kind of truism, but unfortunately, uh, when older people um, move from or have to be taken to assisted living, when they get too old to take care of themselves, they often fall apart cognitively. Their mind also doesn't function as well because they're taking them out of their home they're taking them out of their apartment and those homes and apartments have all the cues to doing the right things all day about eating and shopping and taking pills and all the things. And you take them out of those cues they no longer have the outside environmental support for all the things they, that they need to, need to do. Um, and it's, it's uh, underappreciated how much uh, our, our physical world uh, has the cues and, and, and helps us do what we need to do every day. Interesting. And I, in, in my case, I do a lot of multitasking, for example, but what are your views on multitasking? I think it's great because the uh, artificial intelligence people I talk to are all about, you know, multitasking and, uh, and how it's possible. And there's some amazing, and they, they, I, they always want to me to send them these papers, but there's amazing studies from the 1970s by people who turned out, they were young then, but turned out to be major professors in psychology at Harvard and places. Um, where they showed how amazing our ability is, each of us, to do multiple things at the same time. If we get practice enough, we can do things like take dictation, writing down from a screen, writing down what we're seeing there and listening and, and, and separately writing what that is or remembering a story being told to us as we do like three or four difficult things at once. Uh, and with enough practice, we can do that. We can divide our attention into little segments and have different parts focused on these different tasks at the same time with a lot of practice. So we are very able. The problem is that we uh, lose central control over the attention, and that can be dangerous. Uh, I always tell the story of I had in New York, I had a little kitten, little black cat named, I named Misha, little kitten, and Misha and I lived together. Um, and Misha would come in while I was trying to work. I was sitting on the floor reading or something and Misha wanted to play. So I eventually got to where my uh, right hand would play mousy with Misha. It was like with a sheet or the pill and would play a little mousy game and Misha would play and play. And I got to where my hand would do this without me knowing it. Well, I wouldn't have to guide my hand or think about it. It was playing mousy all the time. Well, eventually it became where my right hand was sort of separate from executive central control and my right hand would do things on its own lots of ways. And I'd find it doing things in the kitchen like with you know, cutlery 
or pans and things that I didn't even know it was doing. And I, I stopped. I stopped playing with Misha this way because there are uh, syndromes that are known when people lose control over, say, their left hand or things like this. Uh, uh, examples of people who like their left hand uh, tries to choke them at night, you know, and they have to tie their hand to the bed rail so it doesn't happen. And I didn't want that. So you have to be careful about that kind of extreme multitasking where your actual hands and things are doing things. Uh, but it does show that we're really able to do multiple things at once. So we can divide our attention in these ways. Um, uh, you know, people who start going really slow on the highway often are having a really intense conversation in the car and uh, their attention is taken away by the conversation, which leaves less for guiding the car. And so they actually go slower and slower to have more time to react in case something happens without realizing it. I once got involved in a conversation with my mother after not seeing her for a long time uh, in the car going back to her house and I was driving and I actually came to a complete stop on the highway because she was telling me all these <laughs> stories about the family. And I was like, so engrossed and enthralled and listening. And she looked at me, she says, you realize you've come to a complete stop. <laughs> and I had, and I, I didn't know I had um, because my attention was being drawn away. So now the question is with multitasking, can you have more than one thing going on? And, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of the literature on goal pursuits and, and how motivations and goals work. And yes, you can. In fact, if you actually find yourself in any situation, ask yourself, carefully you know what are my goals right now that you have many goals at the same time always so you have a goal about self-presentation you want to dress and act in a certain way so people won't think you're strange or people will think you're acceptable at the same time you have a purpose of maybe you're in a grocery store looking for certain things on your shopping list that's a second goal that you have uh, maybe another goal is, you know, social where you're with somebody and you're talking, having a conversation while you're doing the shopping. And so if you take yourself in any normal, rich social environment, um, often you have multiple goals. And also we want to be safe. We don't want to uh, uh, we, we want to avoid uh, other hitting other people with our shopping carts or we don't want to get hit by a car in the parking lot. And these are all there at the same time constantly. The way, the way it works and I'm finding out is there's usually one that's a focal that's really taking your attention, but the others are sort of operating active in the background and they're monitoring. And so the nice one about the safety and the going to your car in the parking lot is that the one about not getting hit by anybody else is not has to be active, it's just monitoring. And it's and anything that happens that's relevant to it, like a car coming or somebody else, then it then it grabs your attention. So what's nice about multitasking is that these can be active without having to dominate our attention at the time and our consciousness, but they can be active and sort of monitoring and ready in case something relevant happens for them. And that way we can preserve our focus of attention, but have other important goals still active and, you know, uh, ready to jump in if they're needed. Yeah, the an, another interesting book which was recently published uh, is it's the, the entitled Peak Mind by Amishi Cha, right? Uh, you may know uh, this one. I haven't uh, read it, but I know of it. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, basically, she talks about uh, something similar that the our attention is like a spotlight, and uh, yes. of course, we can play with it. Um, but then there is this increasing attention deficit disorder, for example, uh, where 
people have problem in focusing uh, or using that spotlight so yeah. this is where like i'm quite interested in the multitasking part like whether we should do it or how far we can stretch it you know yeah. that that kind of thing yeah i i think that that might be analogous to the my my kitten misha you know the, the yeah. thing is once i allow that to happen uh then i uh i was giving up control over that part yeah. of my attention right and uh, delegating or, or, or yielding it to something else. So when Misha came, Misha controlled my hand. And so these other things that might take your attention, you know, they may dominate and take your attention away. And, you know, we have a limited amount of activation or, or energy. And so anything that distracts our attention away, you know, it's when people have um, a worry uh, or an anxiety, something that is, you know, it's, it's distracting and people do worse if you remind them they're going to be doing something later and talk about something that's problematic, you know, it 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 it, it activates it and it, it drains away their attention for what they're supposed to be working on, and they do worse. They're slower reaction times, and they do worse on the on the task right now because they are already starting to think about the thing that's on their mind. So anything like that that's a pressing concern or a worry is always going to hurt your performance. It's always going to drain away without your being able to really control it. Um, these these attentions and things, um, yeah. And there's a whole area of clinical psychology about how to deal with that and effective ways yeah. of dealing with that. Yeah. So there is now um, an increasing interest in, uh, especially in the evaluation committees, etc., about unconscious biases, right? Yeah. Um, so so what what are your views on it? Like um, how well we can use it, for example? Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is uh, this is something that our field came up with in the 1980s, and uh, it's it's now finally gotten to where people realize uh, and accept this idea. I think that's the most uh, accepted um, idea about unconscious processes, because for one thing, people want to believe it. Uh, yeah. We, in, in the sense that we all uh, can find ourselves doing or saying something that's maybe not, uh, you know, uh, correct, or maybe because of our cultural uh, upbringing. And it's it's a very, you know, comforting kind of thing to say that I didn't mean it, yeah. and it was unconscious. It's yeah. like, you know, sort of a nice uh, way out. Yeah. Uh, but a couple of things is that uh, we're, um, uh, when we do these unconscious biases that we really maybe not be able to help because of our culture and, and especially older people when things were, you know, more racist and sexist back when we were kids, uh, certainly my case, you know, than we are, than, uh, than things are now. Um, but um, what was I going to say? Um, there's a difference between uh, being uh, um, non, a non-racist, let's say, and anti-racist. And the difference is I don't I don't intend to, but these things can happen. But there's a way to be anti-racist that actually uh, is more proactive in the sense of fighting it and stopping it. Um, and uh, too many, I think people are, are passively, I, I mean well, and yet I still have these biases and still do these things where you can actively try not to do them. And that's the difference. And so, uh, you know, we have these examples in the U.S. of a, a person working at a Starbucks at a coffee shop being rude or or um, uh, thinking the, the the black customers are, uh, uh, you know, up to no good or some kind of racial bias. And they, they, they try to tell them and educate them. But, you know, the, the best way to control any implicit unconscious process 
is to have a goal to do the opposite. So if you actually incentivize or make people say, hey, when a black customer, this for an example, a black customer comes into my coffee shop, that's an opportunity for you, an opportunity for you to treat them very well and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and like anybody else, but treat them as a valued customer. You're happy they're there. And this is an opportunity. So in other words, now the stimulus coming into your coffee shop, which used to be, oh no, and I don't like this person, I wish they wouldn't come in, instead is now it's an opportunity for you to do this different new thing. And we value that and we will notice that as your managers and as your employers, and, and that is going to get you a raise, it's gonna get you um, promotion, it's gonna get you good things from us, the more you do that, so think of it as an opportunity. So in other words, have a new goal, have incentivized that new goal. Now there's rewards involved, so there's reasons for you to do this. And, and hopefully, in addition, you'll be doing the socially right thing. But if you don't have those social values, it's still gonna help you rewards and opportunities. So that's the really powerful way to become an anti-racist, you know, by having a, motiv a, a motivation to do the right thing. We're, we're, we're motivations and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and rules and structures fall apart is when they tell people what not to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's too much to remember not to do. What you want, and this works with kids too, you, you tell them not to do something that doesn't work very well. What you want to do is tell them what to do. And that really helps them to say, this is what you do. This is what you should do. I want you to do this and ah, I'll do that, as opposed to all the things they have to remember not to do, which is not the way it works. So tell people in these organizations and companies that, that have problems with this what to do and what they want you to do. And then now these are opportunities. Now it's a good thing. Yeah. And it's quite exciting because in my case, I'm also uh, quite interested in um, uh, how we evaluate science, for example, uh, how the whole thing works, what what do people think about and, and yeah. all that. And I see what is the importance of this thing. I mean, it's not only um, race and 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 uh, place, et cetera, nationality, but it's also other kind of biases that we may have, right? And uh, they, of course, I think, It'll be probably very difficult to eliminate all of them, <laughs> but uh, probably will evolve in our biases, you know, and because it's, I, I think, also inbuilt this uh, in-group, out-group system that we have, right? Absolutely. And there's a lot of it that helps us, you know, people can feel better about themselves by, well, at least I'm not a member of that group. And I mean, this happens even in psychology. I yeah. mean, it, it's, it happens like you just said, it happens yeah. everywhere. So, yeah. oh, well, I'm a neuroscientist, right? So I'm better than any psychologist. So even if yeah. I'm not a very good neuroscientist, I'm still by my group membership superior to this whole group of other people. I mean, I've had that for my whole career at NYU and Yale this kind of attitude from some people about their field being better than your field kind of thing. And it's just, oh God, it's pathetic. It's really pathetic. Yeah. Okay. So at the end, uh, would you like to talk about your next book? A so, bit? Yeah, so, so yeah, so I'm really excited because, uh, you know, this for me is something I've never really personally uh, studied because I was always on the unconscious side of things. 
And uh, and I, I know that there's a, a, a tendency still for everyone to, to the, just by common sense in our own experience, because by definition, by definition, we're only going to be aware of the things that we're aware of. And so our common sense is going to tell us we're aware of everything. Well, because we don't have any experience of what we're not aware of. So it's a hard sell. And so I understand that. But what I wanted to do now that I'm, you know, retiring and all that is to really understand the objections and the problems and, and resistance people have to things that are operating unconsciously and uh, to really understand their point of view. And so I really went back and read all the papers and reading these new areas that I sort of read as a student a long time ago, but also with advice of colleagues, you know, the newer, more recent things, too, and trying to put everything together. Um, to basically say, look, you know, fine, we have all these unconscious things happening, fine, that's fine. But what is it, you know, our life is our subjective experience, you know, our phenomenal experience, our conscious experience. What determines that? You know, what what's in there? What 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 are the elements in there? Um, and and uh, you know, how how does it all work together in the stream of consciousness? And what I found is that we have very brilliant people in, in our past in this field. Uh, Henri Bergson, the, the French social psychologist of the late 1800s, uh, William James, George Miller, the father of cognitive science, uh, Edelman, Gerard Edelman, who really tackled the hard problem in a, in a very sophisticated way more, more recently, and people like that. They're few and far between. There are not very many who really said, you know, uh, our experience is not atomistic. It's not one shot at a time from the outside world constantly. It's continuous. It's felt to be continuous. Continuity, a stream of thought and experience. And what causes that to happen. And I'm trying to, you know, put everything in there to basically say, we sort of know this now. And everything fits in its place. Priming fits in because it helps the, the recent past blend in and cause continuity with the present. And it, it, it shapes and informs, but it creates the sense of continuity. It's a natural process. Uh, and all of it's natural and and so forth and so on. So it, to me, it's a completion. You know, it's the I've done the one I'm doing the other. I'm learning a lot. It's putting it all together. So a lot of it is for my own personal benefit and my own personal curiosity. But, you know, that's that's what I started. It's so it's um it's really for me. If no one reads this book, it's fine. It was for me, you know, but uh We'll, we'll see what happens with it. But that's what I'm doing, and, it, and it's always going to be something I'm interested in, however old I get to be. Well, with the, you know, that already such an interesting brief, I think all people will be interested in this this kind of topic. I hope and so. Like, yeah, and it's it's like the, it's our daily life, basically, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how it happens, et cetera, et cetera, it's so interesting. So there is no point that people won't be interested, right? So uh, that's right. <laughs> but so when is it, uh, when are you planning to? I'm hoping a year from this summer, I'm hoping because I'm still, teaching so right i'm not totally retired and when you have a semester of teaching and and you're still on the job uh, it takes time away from the outside things like that but uh i'm i'm able to work on it until september then i'll pick it up again next january and i'm making a lot of progress so it's slow going any anybody who writes books i mean i yeah. envy people who write them fast because i've only written one and I, I know what to do, and it's still very time consuming. I'm hoping by a year from summer I'll have it I'll have it done. Okay. I'm hoping it okay. might be the planning fallacy, and you'll see it in the 2033 or something. But uh, <laughs> yeah, 
Perfect. I mean, yeah. So then we can have another conversation and we can uh, explore uh, these ideas again. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I look forward to that. Yeah. So thank you so much for accepting the invitation and sharing all the interesting research work that you are doing, all the interesting things uh, that you've brought in the in the society in the science. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been a really it's been nice to meet you, but also really interesting conversation too. I've enjoyed it. So thanks thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.